Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Crazy in Love is the true crime podcast that tells love stories with a twist. It's very clear they were deeply in love. They had a beautiful wedding and everything going for them. Sometimes the twist of a knife. Suicide, unlike any other manner of death, is the single most difficult manner of death to prove just because things start off with once upon a time doesn't mean everyone lives happily ever after this is crazy in love a production of kt studios and iHeartRadio. i'm courtney armstrong a crime producer at kt studios joined by fellow producer stephanie lidecker we're also joined by guest forensic expert joseph scott morgan Joseph hosts his own podcast, Body Bags, and has handled thousands of death investigations. In 1987, Joseph became the youngest death investigator in the country. He also recently worked with us on our documentary, Murdered and Missing in Montana, now streaming on Peacock, and was a significant contributor to our Piketon Massacre podcast. Joseph has worked at this particular case from the beginning and offers an in-depth forensic perspective. Today, we're exploring the story of the addict, the bad boss, and the American beauty. Kristen Rossum came from a charm background. Her father was a wealthy, powerful man, and her mother was a high-powered ad executive. Kristen, with her beautiful blue eyes, was a child model who literally played a sugar plum fairy as a girl. In February 1995, Kristen was just 18 years old when she decided to take a solo trip from her home in San Diego across the Mexican border to Tijuana. Blonde and beautiful, going to Tijuana by herself might not have seemed like the best idea, but Kristen was confident and no one could tell her what to do. While on the pedestrian bridge between the two countries, as the sun set, Kristen literally bumped into Greg DeVillers. Greg was visiting Mexico with his two younger brothers, Jerome and Bertrand. Excited to meet an attractive single woman, Greg invited Kristen to spend the day with them. They all spent the day drinking, talking, and dancing. 
and it was clear to Greg's brothers that he only had eyes for Kristen. It was a match made in Mexico. Within days of returning from south of the border, Kristen was living with Greg. While it seemed fast, friends saw what worked about the couple. They were both driven and had big plans. They had shared interests like hiking and were, quote, proud of each other. Within just a week of dating, they were already saying, I love you. It's understandable why Kristen found Greg so attractive. Greg was first-generation American. His parents were both born in France and had moved from Europe to Chicago to find a better life for their future children. Two years after Greg was born, the family moved to California and had two more children, making Greg the oldest of three. By the time he reached his 20s, Greg had grown into a handsome young man with brown curly hair and a smile that made Kristen feel comfortable. Both Kristen and Greg continued to attend college in San Diego. In 1997, Greg graduated and began working at a biotech company. By the end of 1997, the couple was engaged and on June 5, 1999, they got married in a Southern California outdoor ceremony. Here's Stephanie. They had a beautiful wedding and everything going for them. Right after the wedding, Kristen graduated cum laude and got a job working as a toxicologist for the medical examiner's office in San Diego, which is a very prestigious job. Joseph, you've spent so much time in the medical examiner's office yourself in your career. What type of person does it take to become a toxicologist? From a technical perspective, it requires more expertise than just about any other profession because you have to understand things at a molecular level. For many of us, seemingly a theoretical constructs, but in her role working there with the ME's office, she would be examining blood, urine, vitreous fluid from the eyes of the dead, this sort of thing, to try to determine what exactly was going on at a chemical level in every person that passed through the medical examiner. And one thing that you got to keep in mind is that even though a lot of bodies come through the medical examiner's office, not everybody gets autopsy but almost to a person, everybody that comes through, they do a blood draw on. And so those samples are run. And so she would be faced with this day in and day out, examining these tissues and understanding the process of drug abuse and certainly lethal overdoses. In order to even get a job like this, for her at least, her degree was actually in biochemistry. So what that states, it's not just straight up chemistry. It is an understanding of how chemistry impacts biological systems. And that's a perfect fit for the medical examiner's office because we have to understand it, particularly in a world that we live in nowadays that's so where drugs are so pervasive and so many people are impacted by them. And she would have been on the front line of that. Can you imagine that? She was on the front line of examining all of these samples that were coming in and the courts, families, everybody was heavily reliant upon what her findings would be. I've often equated people that were in my field and particularly really high-end technical jobs like this to watchmakers. And the reason I use that is that idea is that you have to pay attention to details and as trite as it is, the devil is in the details. So, so much hinges upon what you do. You have to be laser focused at all time and it is very high pressure. While it seemed like the couple had it all, good look, successful careers, and a loving marriage, behind closed doors they were facing some serious demons. It turns out that Kristen was actually a former drug user who had been addicted to crystal meth since high school. At one point, she even attempted suicide and became estranged from her parents. Kristen's drug addiction is a very big piece of this story. Now, if you remember when Greg and Kristen met on the pedestrian bridge in Mexico, Kristen was actually there by herself because at that point, she was already a runaway and had left home. Allegedly, her wealthy parents had kicked her out altogether due to her ongoing drug addiction. According to reports, Kristen's very first time trying crystal meth was in high school, and she was immediately hooked. She moved in with Greg then right away because she really had nowhere else to go. And when she was at Greg's, his brother, Jerome, he also becomes very significant he started noticing jewelry and checks. Things around the house that were big and small started going missing. He accused Kristen. 
She denied it. And as a result, Jerome moved out. We think about the decades that we've just come through relative to crystal meth, how it was produced at home. It's a very dirty drug. And uh, when I say dirty, you don't really know the sourcing of it many times. First off, it's horribly dangerous to produce. But secondly, you don't know what the components are. It's not like it's being manufactured somewhere in a controlled environment where you would think about a pharmaceutical company. This this is cooked up in bathtubs. It's cooked up in sinks. It's an absolute horror show. But what magnifies this is the fact that crystal meth is so highly addicted. Not everybody wants to use it in order to have some kind of rush where it's some kind of sexually related thing or they're going out to rob a, a liquor store or something like that. Some people want to use it because they're so highly stimulated. They can stay up for 24, 48 hours at a time and not miss a lick. And they're studying the entire time. They're trying to consume everything they need to do to meet the standard they have in their mind. And some people see this, unfortunately, as a means to do that. That would make sense also because she was you know, a smart girl and a good student. And she later, you know, goes on to to really do great things, you know, despite even this circumstance and her stealing. Greg supported Kristen and eventually helps her get sober. And she really did. She got back on track, which to your point, Joseph, was very difficult to do. And, you know, remember, she ended up graduating with honors and went on to have a big job at the city's medical examiner's office. Yeah, you know, a real downside to this is that it's almost like if you're an alcoholic and you work in a bar. Imagine that, how rough a go that is. Now, if you are working in an Emmy's office, many of the people that are there as a result of whatever brought them to their end came there as a result of some type of drug addiction. And my point here is this. If you're working in that environment and you're an addict, there is always a reminder. I think a lot of people would think, well, my God, she sees the end result of this. But it's very difficult to judge someone based upon that, that is an addict when they're always thinking. Can you imagine? You're always trapped in the cycle in your mind about things like crystal meth, that it's there. You know, it's the old, the old idea of the siren song whispering to you, trying to draw you in. And boy, it's a lethal, lethal road. From my perspective, from my worldview, which is a medical legal view, on the morning of November 6, 2000, Greg woke up feeling sick and sluggish. He was so under the weather that Kristen had to call his job for him. Here's a recording of the voicemail Kristen left. This is um, Kristen, Greg's wife, calling. He's not feeling well all day, so he's most likely going to be taking the whole day. He's sleeping right now, but I just wanted to let you know. Hopefully someone else gets his message and um, that I'm not going to call him. Okay, thank you. Greg's co-workers were worried. He'd never done anything like this before. Also, in the days prior, his boss had noticed Greg seemed nervous and preoccupied about a family issue. Concerned, his boss called him repeatedly, but no one answered all day. Later that night, at 9.15 p.m., Kristen called 911 crying. When she was getting into bed that night, Kristen found Greg unresponsive. He was cold. Per the dispatcher's instructions, she tried to resuscitate her husband to no avail. Three minutes later, paramedics arrived and tried to save him, but at 10.16 p.m., Greg was declared dead. Police did a 25-minute interview with Kristen, and here's what we know is her side of the story. She came home at 8.30 p.m. and found Greg sleeping. She says she didn't want to wake him or disturb him in any way, so she had dinner by herself and then took a, quote, long bath. It was only after that bath that she crawled into bed and noticed that Greg was actually cold, and that's when she called 911. This was curious, though, because according to police, this was very uncommon for Greg, and generally speaking, he was very happy. And she told police, however, that he was a bit depressed and that they were having marital problems. Yeah, and it would it would give you pause, you know, when you hear that. The first thing you have to ask is, why is this young, robust man now deceased, essentially, and, and has passed away with, with really no prior complaint. For us in the medical legal community, when we have a young person that just suddenly kicks off this mortal coil with no reasonable explanation, they don't have any kind of pre-existing health conditions or anything like that, I got to tell you, our red flags are going up instantaneously because at the end of the day, in my field, 
in the field in which Ms. Rossum worked in, the medical legal community, we are what is referred to as the certifiers of death. And that's something that's very unique to our field. And she understood that. And that, that's what's so striking about this. We are those people that are going to determine the cause of death. And then we're going to determine the manner of death, whether it's a homicide, a suicide, an accident, whatever the case might be. And that makes this all the more impactful. Right. And this was obviously quite a scene because there were apparently rose petals strewn across the bed, which is interesting if she hadn't noticed that when she first came home. But what do you think that was all about? I, I got to tell you, you know, one of the most intriguing things about this, and I've covered this case for some time, I got to confess, I've got a weakness for American beauty. I love that movie. And, you know, there's that one scene, the young actress, you know, is, is essentially bathed, if you will, in rose petals where they're floating all about. And it's this fantasy scene in there. And according to investigators and according to court records, essentially, that's where this idea arose from. And I've often thought, was this in some way to imply that there was this deep romance that, you know, for some reason this had bubbled up within them and that it was a very kind of romanticized view of the world? Or was it essentially her awareness of what we look for at scenes as death investigators. And maybe she's getting the idea, you know what, this could be interesting. This could put the investigators off the scent in this case because maybe he's making a final statement that I love you and in these rose petals are laying all about, proposing my love to you and my final wish is here. And then suddenly he's gone. Is she attempting to sure up the narrative that she's putting forth of suicide? And keep in mind, guys, in our community, Suicide, unlike any other manner of death, is the single most difficult manner of death to prove. Because absent a note and absent verbalization, which is what the psychiatrists like to say, they have what's called uh, suicidal ideation combined with vocalization is the way they term it. In other words, you're thinking about it and you say it. And if you're absent that, you don't really know which way to go because you don't have a witness. You know, even in a homicide, you got a witness, right? It might be the perpetrator, but you got a witness. In a suicide, to have a note, for instance, which is kind of a uh, an entertainment narrative, you know, if you think about it, they, that's used a lot, you know, in uh, when you're doing fiction and that sort of thing. That ain't the case. Interesting. I hadn't considered that. So, yeah, so now this is a two-part question, right? Is this suicide where he was setting the stage as a final goodbye and that these rose petals are serving as a bit of a suicide note? Or is this murder and a different stage is being set, looking maybe to make it appear that way? I've been to classes of staged suicides. Can you believe that? Wow. I spent two days in classes studying staged, staged suicide that were used in order to mask a homicide. There are people that spend their entire careers looking at this. And so that's actually a narrative here. And the fact that she worked for this organization, she'd be well aware of staged cases and what to do. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. One of the most terrifying things that exist out there, I think, uh, relative to crime scene and whatnot, and for what we do, is the potential to have a rogue agent in forensics or law enforcement that knows how to process or knows what we do to process a scene. You can take John Q. Public and they'll try, but they fail. They miss the little details. For us, that's a terrifying prospect because it makes our job all the more difficult. Her Achilles heel, it goes, if you ever saw the movie or read the book Red Dragon uh, with uh, Anthony Hopkins and, uh, you know, it's Hannibal Lecter, but when uh, Ed Norton is interviewing him, Lecter says to him, by virtue of this, by implication, you think that you're smarter than me. And Ed Norton looks at him and says, no, I don't think I'm smarter than you. I just had an advantage. And he says, really, what was that advantage? He says, you're insane, doctor. And that's that's what it comes down to. She was an addict. So that's <laughs> that was her Achilles heel in the end. So she's, in fact, potentially staging a scene to make it look as though it was a suicide. And she would potentially know how to do that. Yes. And that's that's the rub. That's the terrifying piece to this. And when police were speaking to her, Kristen did seem to have her story pretty buttoned up. And she basically did know, in her head at least, at least she felt as though she knew what the questions were going to be. So she had an answer for all of them. You know, they asked her some basic stuff. Why would Greg want to kill himself? And she quickly revealed that the couple had been dealing with some marital issues and that Greg was depressed. Obviously, some key words to be hearing if you're an official investigating a suicide. Kristen told police that Greg had bought her roses for her birthday and that these petals were maybe left over from that and that he maybe must have strewn them around the bed almost as a suicide note. She described it to be melodramatic, were her words. 
And she also thought, yeah, Joseph, to your point, that this must have been an homage to recreate Kristen's favorite movie, American Beauty, where there's that iconic scene. She had an answer for everything, and the scene was very thorough. I can only imagine, as a former investigator, how shocked I would have been if I walked into that bedroom and I see these rose petals everywhere. You know, I'm, my instantaneously, I'm thinking, what in the hell am I looking at here? And why? first off, why do you possess this many rose petals? And by the way, here is Kristen thinking she's being so clever because she's going to outsmart everybody. But police were curious why she went so far out of her way during their interview with her to say she took a, quote, long bath. So they actually checked the tub. And, you know, it was one of those bathtubs that has those screw-in drain covers. This might seem like a small detail, but when they looked at the bathroom and examined the tub, that screw was missing and actually was missing from the tub entirely and was on a shelf someplace else in the bathroom. So again, it seems like a small detail, but why would she have gone through the trouble to empty the tub, put the drain stopper on a shelf across the way? That ends up becoming a pretty significant detail. Yeah, it does. Because, you know, just from a practical functional standpoint, which is, you know, some of the stuff that we look at as investigators is, it's very practical. It's not exotic things that we look for. We look for the most basic logical things here. And so that would compel us to ask that question. Maybe not to the suspect, but we would ask it in our minds. We'd certainly talk about it among ourselves. She's saying she's taking a bath and a long one at that. It's a question that would be asked and would demand an answer, I think, on the part of the investigators. It seemed the 26-year-old had killed himself by taking a handful of pills. When police got to the apartment, they noticed two strange things. The first was that there were no pill containers anywhere in the home. If Greg had killed himself with pills, the bottle should have been somewhere in the apartment. The second odd discovery was a pile of rose petals next to the couple's bed. Police also found a photo from the couple's wedding tucked under Greg's pillow. After midnight, Kristen returned to the couple's apartment to speak with police, but she was not alone. She had a man in tow who was simply introduced to detectives as a co-worker. On November 8th, toxicology reports came back and revealed Greg had oxycodone and clonazepam in his system. Honestly, Joseph, that being a deadly combination of drugs makes a lot of sense. However, for, you know, Greg's family, they weren't buying it because A, they were shocked that he killed himself, but also the fact that he would overdose on pills because he never, ever, ever took pills, apparently. In fact, he had a bit of an aversion to taking pills. His boss even said that he was, air quotes, afraid of taking pills. He refused to even take an Advil. So again, to be taking a lot of them was a bit out of character. And also on a personal note, Greg was planning this really exciting fishing trip with his brothers, and he was telling everybody about it and was very excited for it. So it seemed very, very, very unusual to his family. When you have an individual that is still planning and excited about things that are going to happen in his life, I'd be excited about going on a fishing trip. I mean, that's just me, you know, and I'd be talking about it, you know, and that sort of thing. And you don't normally think of somebody that's going to continue to look into the future that's going to end their lives. And I think that the family was right. They look, uh, other than his wife, you know, his brother, whoever's in his little circle is going to know him better than anybody. And so this certainly made alarm bells go off with them. And again, there's a lot of stuff that's in play here. You don't know what the dosage is relative to the clonazepam and also the combination with the oxy. One of the things about the oxycontin that's very dangerous is that it suppresses the respiratory system. You get an individual that kind of sli- slips down into this milky milkiness and they wind up having trouble breathing. They go into a congestive failure perhaps. And that's, that's one of the things that makes it very, very dangerous. Several days after Greg's apparent shocking suicide, his brothers and boss got together. None of them could believe that Greg would have killed himself. Greg's brother, Jerome, the same one who had suspected Kristen was stealing from them went to confront Kristen. Jerome recorded this meeting. Take a listen to the audio. 
It's hard for me to believe that my brother committed suicide. I don't think he did. I don't think he did. I don't think so either. I think it was accidental. I don't know if he had a, a, a reaction to something. Maybe he's allergic to a drug. Maybe. Maybe he's just... I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. And we won't know until the results are back. I am just... Leave it to the bravery of a brother, though, right? Jerome going in there, getting questions answered and recording the whole thing. It's huge. Interestingly, during that same meeting, Jerome asked Kristen if she was, in fact, having an affair, which completely caught her off guard. Uh, she told him that she had gotten very close to her boss at the medical examiner's office. His name is Dr. Michael Robertson, but that they were not having an affair. And it turns out Michael was in fact the same person that was with her the night of the suicide, the man that she introduced to police as her co-worker. Jerome did not believe any of this. And Jerome's theory was that Michael and Kristen, because of where they worked together, that they knew how to cover this stuff up and that they could in fact cover up a murder. And mostly because they had done so many autopsies at work every day. Joseph, is that accurate? Yeah, run from the person that says they've seen everything. But when you work at a medical examiner's office like the size of the one in San Diego County, you see a lot. You see just about every kind of possibility as it applies to a mode of death. All right. And so right he was, the brother, to question this. I mean, I'd, I'd certainly be suspicious if I had uh, a brother that had no suicidal ideation whatsoever, that he was full of life. He was healthy. You know, we've talked about being healthy and all of a sudden he's gone. How do you measure that out in balance? And as a, a loved one, you know, this calculus in your brain and you're trying to understand it because obviously he's close with his brother. You know, they're, they're talking about taking trips and all these sorts of things. And you can imagine, you know, that kind of abiding love that a brother has and he wants explanations because he's he's aware that that his brother's life is at an end. How do you explain these things? Frustrated, Greg's family went to the San Diego police to ask them to look into the case. As the San Diego Police Department began to look into Greg's death, they interviewed witnesses at the morgue. Those witnesses told police that the night of his death, Kristen was allowed to go into the morgue to be alone with Greg. When she came out, she met with her boss, Michael, and they kissed. Police also uncovered that Kristen donated Greg's organs the night he died, specifically his skin and his eyes. She'd also arranged for Greg to be cremated immediately after the autopsy. Greg's family put a stop to the cremation and requested a separate autopsy with more extensive toxicology tests. The new test confirmed oxycodone and clonazepam were in Greg's system, but those two drugs were not what killed him. It turns out Greg had a fatal amount of fentanyl in his system. It's pretty astounding because Joseph, you and I have dealt with this on other cases and even quite recently on a different case altogether. So yes, this is being used as a potential tool to cover up a murder. I mean, this is obviously a very deep relationship. She is now has access to her now deceased husband's body and has the ability to say goodbye to him and maybe have last moments. And then when she leaves, she kisses her boss. Thankfully, Jerome really didn't let up. And this is an important piece of the puzzle because oftentimes investigators only have the details they have to work with. And unless a family member or a friend really pushes, and in this case, Jerome really went above and beyond to make sure he was getting answers because he just wasn't buying it. And ultimately that tipped over this whole case. Let's stop here for another quick break.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Let's keep in mind this case occurred back in 2000. For many of us, that seems just like yesterday, but it, it was quite some time ago. I mean, back then, fentanyl was not really known. It was known in the medical community. It was certainly known in the uh, in the medical legal community that it was a dangerous drug, but it, it wasn't as pervasive then. And that one nugget right there from an investigative standpoint is key because a chemist, a uh, forensic toxicologist would have had an understanding of that. They would have understand the level of lethality of this particular drug. It was just kind of bursting on the scene. It'd been around for a few years when a body comes into the morgue 
and we do blood draws. And just so you know, we draw blood from the heart, generally from the aorta, or we do femoral blood. We draw urine. Okay. We will draw vitreous fluid, which actually comes from the eye. And we will draw bile sometimes uh, if the person still has a gallbladder. And we use these samples to run kind of an all-encompassing panel. And when I say all-encompassing, that's kind of a, a misrepresentation because it's a standard panel. It's many of the drugs that are in common usage at the time. Well, back in 2000, we would have been looking for Coke, cocaine metabolite, uh, Oxy would have been on there. Certainly clonazepam, any kind of psychiatric medication that's within the realm of normalcy, if you will. And then, you know, we look for things like THC, any kind of levels like that, opiates, you know, these types of things. We even get a level on salicylates if people don't know what that is. It's aspirin, okay? And so acetaminophen, you know, those, those things will come back on the panel, but that's a standard panel. And back then, fentanyl was not part of the standard panel. You have to jump forward several years. And interestingly enough, I think personally, from a perspective of a former practitioner, this case was key to that. This case kind of pushed uh, the medical legal community to start looking for fentanyl. And then of course, when it, it burst on the scene and now it's such a, a monster out there, this case, if it's one of the first triggers, you know, that made it come to the forefront. And it's when the, the population at large first heard about fentanyl like this in a broad sense, everyday common folk, you know, hearing that. So that goes to this idea of, you know, well, what pushed them toward trying to search for another drug where they would have to take and look at a, a, a separate panel? And the key here is is these autopsies that were conducted, because some of the things that you're going to look for are going to be physical changes in the body, and most notably are going to be changes in the lungs, you know, because the lungs get so heavy with this stuff. I mean, it's just, it's like you're drowning. You, know, you can't breathe. And you'll, you'll see evidence of that microscopically. You have to ask and answer that question. And another panel, something that's more specific, is going to give you those answers. And that would happen as a standard probably today, right? But again, it didn't back then. But if it didn't happen back then because it wasn't a standard order, Kristen, because she worked at the Emmy's office, she would have known that, that it would have likely gone undetected, right? Yeah. And that doesn't that send a chill up your spine? You know, you begin to think about, you know, what kind of knowledge does she possess? And, you know, when you have somebody that has uh, bad intentions and they're armed with this knowledge, you know, how, you know, how can I get away? I've had a lot of writers, I've, I've spoken to writers before, fiction writers, that they want me to state to them, you know, what's the perfect crime? You know, how can someone get away? I'm always, <laughs> I'm always terrified to, to give answers to those types of questions. But you, you now you have a real person that's doing this for a living. That, that's what's so scary about this, is that day in and day out, she's around all of these samples. Why did she have the skin and eyes donated? Was that part of a cover-up? I think that to a certain degree, it probably was. The skin's very interesting. And this is something a lot of folks don't understand this about organ donation. They do take skin and obviously they take eyes and they use it for, for burn victims many times to do grafts with. It's, it's fantastic stuff. They'll take bone as well. And so it's something that I worked with, you know, quite a bit. I worked with transplant teams and that sort of thing. It's a, a fascinating thing. And it's, it's certainly, it's talk about doing good in the world. You know, people talk about doing good. This is doing good. But for her purposes, and again, this goes back to this idea of her understanding of what we would be looking for. If you're getting the skin donated, why would you want to do that? Why would you sign off on that? Did she expressly say, and I'm just kind of throwing this out there for people to think about. Did she expressly say, I want the skin donated? Well, what would, what would happen to it? Well, let me tell you what would happen to it the skin after it is removed from the body would have been thoroughly cleaned. And if you're talking about applying an agent to somebody like a transdermal patch, for instance, all of the adhesive that was there, any kind of, of indication that there was something that was left behind on the surface of the skin, it's going to be gone. Evidence is gone in a second. It vanishes and that, that in and of itself goes to this higher understanding of the world that she's involved in and the criminal activity 
that she's involved in. And this is, of course, the ultimate in criminal activity. And then she tries to also destroy the body altogether. So first she donates the skin to potentially remove any proof that there was fentanyl patches involved. And then she removes the eyes. Why the eyes? I think that that goes maybe to a bigger narrative here. It's it's two-pronged. I think that part of it has to do with the fact that if she had an understanding, say, for instance, of vitreous fluid, which is the liquid that is contained within the eye, and it's thicker than water. For us, when we draw that fluid out, it's kind of protected from circulation. So when we look at the results from a vitreous draw, it's not specific chemically, like it's not as tight. The parameters are not as tight as you have with blood, but this is a cool thing about it. With vitreous fluid, it, I equate it when I'm talking to high schools and stuff, you know, and talking to these kids, I tell them it, it's kind of like looking at tree rings because you can't really know how much water maybe came down in a particular year if you look at the tree rings, but you know there was a lot of it. And so it gives you kind of this residual level you know, that was there, that the person was impacted by this. I don't know if that's what she was thinking. I don't know. Who who knows? But all along, there's been deception going on here. And I think that's part of it. And, you know, when you get to cremation, ain't nothing left. You're talking about putting a body in a crematory that burns at 1,800 degrees, and it's sustained. And it's sustained for hours. And that body is completely and totally rendered down. There's nothing that you can actually utilize I'm sure somebody will question me on this, but there is there's hardly anything that you can u- utilize for testing after a body has been cremated at this at least at this point in our scientific continuum. Um, and so you've you have rendered this body down to being useless at that point. And I mean that strictly from a scientific standpoint. It was around this time that the police brought Kristen's boss Michael in for an interview. Michael said he knew nothing about Greg's death. Take a listen. Uh, Kristen and I uh, became fond of each other shortly after I began working at the lab. We had a personal relationship probably a month after I began there. A few days later, on November 22nd, 2000, the police brought Kristen in. During their three-hour interrogation, police asked her about her marriage to Greg. Here's an excerpt. During their interview, police also asked Kristen about her drug use. Police then asked Kristen about her relationship with Michael. She admitted they were having an affair and told them that when Greg found out, he had killed himself. Throughout all of these interviews, Kristen vehemently denied killing her husband, Greg. Kristen is essentially standing her ground and not confessing to anything. During the investigation, police seized Kristen, Greg, and Michael's computers. It was pretty clear to police that he was very passionate about Kristen. In their exchanges via email, they both confessed their love to each other and wrote about destiny and how they were soulmates. And on Michael's computer, police found a report about fentanyl. Police also say that it was part of her job. She was also in charge of the drug impound room logbook, meaning if drugs were seized, They get logged in by somebody, and that somebody was Kristen. That's pretty crazy that she was even allowed to have that job, handling illicit drugs, if she was a former drug addict herself. A lot of people say, well, why does the ME even have drugs? Well, keep in mind, very few of the cases that we work are actually homicides. They make up a very small percentage. So every time we go and investigate a death, and that's any kind of death, that they're called found deaths. It can be a natural, a suicide, an accidental death. We take possession of the drugs that are at the scene and we bring them in. And most of the time, they're destroyed. Sometimes they're retained for further testing. It is considered to be a piece of evidence at that point. The, the court views it that way. It's a very controlled environment. There are very few people that would actually have access and keys to this area. And she would be what is referred to as 
uh, as an evidence custodian. And I don't mean she's going in there cleaning up. I'm saying she is the custodian of evidence, which means she protects it. She's been entrusted with these keys. Obviously, you know, as this begins to unfold, we find out so many more details. We find out that a month before Greg's death, Kristen and Michael together went to some sort of a medical conference on accidental overdoses from fentanyl. It was essentially a blueprint to Greg's murder. That again goes to to an element that we talk about in crime investigation all the time, an element of premeditative event. You know, how long have you been stewing over this in your mind? How long have you been trying to concoct this? Maybe she's thinking, maybe there is a way to commit a perfect murder here. You know, because keep in mind at that conference back during that time, I'm not saying fentanyl was brand new, but we didn't understand it the way we understand it now. It gives her a moment or two or maybe months to consider, you know, the level of lethality that we're talking about here. Something that the rest of the public would not have been aware of. Certainly something that the police would not have been aware of. And how can you kind of slide this under the door, you know, uh, relative to uh, sneaking this in? You couldn't do it today. That doesn't mean there aren't other drugs on the horizon out there that might might wind up doing the same thing someday. This is significant also because apparently Michael is the boss at the medical examiner's office. So Michael was known. Kristen was a drug addict and didn't report that to anyone. This, again, adds another layer to this case. This guy actually understands. He understands at a molecular level the impact of crystal meth. He can't claim ignorance here, you know, to know how this is going to impact a a person, and particularly an individual that is involved in such highly technical work where so much is riding on it. This guy's a PhD level scientist. That's the type of atmosphere that he's in. He has no excuse whatsoever. But there was one very interesting piece of the equation, which ended up being a huge break in the case. Police went through Kristen's items and they found in her wallet that she had been carrying a Vons discount grocery store. Vons is one of those grocery stores here in Southern California, kind of like a Safeway or a Ralph's or a Wahlbaum's, depending upon where you live in the country. So she had that card on her the night of Greg's death. On the afternoon of Greg's death at 12.41 p.m., Kristen purchased chicken soup, cold medicine, a Bic lighter, and a single red rose. While she paid in cash, she still wanted the discount, so she swiped her Vons discount card, and that swipe is what ultimately proves she lied. She lied about the rose petals, and remember how she said they were all left over and at the scene, and it was some sort of an homage to her favorite movie? All of that was a lie. And this was the one thing that really proved that she, in fact, was potentially guilty. The one thing they couldn't prove, though, is how she actually administered the fentanyl to Greg. Hey, Joseph, how would they get away with that? You think about like an analgesic, which is a pain-relieving type of agent that you would take. It can impart a deep state of sleep. Probably the most glaring example, if anybody in the audience has ever undergone any kind of surgery, where they have to be, you know, put to sleep in the best kind of way, uh, that is to to have surgery performed. So you have no awareness whatsoever. People talk about it being a dark blackness that kind of washes over you in that moment in time. It happens very quickly many times when, you know, you go into the surgery suite and they begin to push these drugs in deeper and deeper and deeper into this. And many times when you come across people that have been exposed to this type of medication that are outside the surgery suite. It will give you the impression that they can't be roused and it it provides instantaneous pain relief in and of itself from a, a chemistry standpoint. It's, it's quite a miracle drug in that sense, but unfortunately like crystal meth, it's probably even outpacing our country right now uh, relative to its level of insidiousness of how dangerous it is and how fatal it is and how many lives is absolutely destroyed. In most cases, however, in the past, they have used what are referred to as fentanyl patches. And just so folks in the audience understand, there are drugs that we refer to as being transdermal. 
and dermal, like the skin. And that's precisely what it means is that people that are, for instance, trying to quit smoking, they'll put a patch on their arm and that kind of infuses them with a, a dose of nicotine. Fentanyl is transdermal and it's it can be lethal, but in the past they've used fentanyl patches to great success. And you apply these to uh, an area where you're experiencing pain and it it knocks the pain down. You can imagine in, in given in a in a regulated and moderated dose, it's certainly something that that can provide relief and it's very safe if a doctor is kind of controlling this. But of course the problem is is that when you get addictive personalities and you get people that uh, don't want to control it, that they want to use it for some kind of nefarious means, it's as dangerous as holding a loaded gun in your hand. But my thought is, is that you get an individual into a relaxed state with an anti-anxiety drug. Maybe you give them an oxy, and then you get them into this kind of sleepy, kind of warm, milky position that you're in and while they're sleeping. All of a sudden, out come fentanyl patches, and you start applying them to the body over a period of time. They're being absorbed. So why would Kristen want to kill her husband? That is the question everybody has been asking, and officials believe that Greg actually found out that Kristen's drug use was in full force again, and that she was stealing drugs from work, and he threatened to report it. And that was something that she couldn't possibly face on her own. The police were beginning to suspect that Greg didn't kill himself, but the question was, where did the lethal dose of fentanyl come from? Police ordered a search warrant for the medical examiner's office where Kristen and Michael worked. They began combing through the records for the hundreds of impounded drugs. During their search, in an unmarked and unused desk drawer, they found a crumpled envelope from the drug impound room. In it was what looked like a crack pipe with noticeable residue on it. The pipe was sent in for testing. When they finished combing through the impound room logs, they found that oxycodone, clonazepam, and fentanyl were all missing. Additionally, the drug pipe test came back. The drug was crystal meth, and the DNA all over the pipe belonged to Kristen. On June 25, 2001, seven months after Greg's death, Kristen was arrested and charged with murder. When the trial started in October of 2002, Kristen looked poised and made up. Her hair was done perfectly and she had pearls draped across her neck. To counter this image, the prosecution blew up a former mugshot from her drug days. In the photo, Kristen looked gaunt and angry. It was a stark transformation to the woman now facing murder charges. The prosecution's goal was to remind the jury that the American beauty they saw in the courtroom was just a facade. After a month-long trial with 50 witnesses, the jury deliberated for seven and a half hours. Ultimately, Kristen Rossum was found guilty of murder. The verdict came on November 12th, which would have been Greg's 29th birthday. As for Kristen's former boss and lover, Dr. Michael Robertson returned to his homeland in Australia before the trial began. In 2006, San Diego prosecutors filed a criminal complaint charging him with one count of conspiracy to obstruct justice. However, the Australian government declined to extradite him, and he is currently a free man. Here's a quote he gave to an Australian newspaper. Dr. Robertson to this day denies having any involvement or knowledge that Kristen carried out a plot to kill Greg. Robertson is running a forensic consulting service in Brisbane, Australia. Joseph Scott Morgan's podcast, Body Bags, is available now for download everywhere. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, listen to seasons one and two of The Piked and Massacre, another KT Studios production. And follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Beth Greenwald, Chris Graves, Lisa DiGiovine, Jeff Shane, Tim Hamilton, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.